We bow our heads in prayer before I share the word. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, send your spirit that we might not hear just the words of a man, but that your spirit would use this vessel, clay jar as it is, Lord, and pour out your spirit on us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today is Epiphany Sunday. Um, for some churches that go through the lectionary, they will tend to celebrate it. Uh, we tend to do it by singing songs about the Magi who came to visit Jesus. It's also sometimes known as uh, the Lord's Baptism Sunday, uh, where sometimes the text that is used is, uh, is the, the one where Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan. Uh, but I've chosen to share about this one, which is also about an epiphany. An epiphany is uh, essentially a deeper realization of a fact or a truth that is given to you. A, a, uh, it's almost a situation, for example, when we have a term when you say the coin finally dropped. Uh, I used to have a friend uh, in Board of Youth Work. We used to joke around and sometimes he'd tell a joke uh, to some of us. But some of those who were a little bit slower in catching the joke Sometimes in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock in the morning, they wake up and they suddenly, ah, they finally understood what the joke is about. So an epiphany is a little bit like that. You, you are presented with uh, something, an act, an event, a fact, or a piece of information, but the full realization of what that means may only come later on. Quite commonly, we understand this in the Greek lore as the... Uh, uh, the eureka moment. Aha, I've suddenly figured this out and then you run out screaming. He says, I got it, I got it. I know, I, I know what this means. So it's, uh, it's a talk about signs and in particular, I'm taking this term signs and wonders. You find it in actually one of the verses uh, that we're using. But I also uh, decided to latch on this for several reasons. We started on the 31st of December last year, beginning to read through the entire New Testament, starting with John chapter 1. Uh, and if you have been going through your readings, you would have come across this particular passage. Uh, Jesus has come, he's seen as the Word, uh, the Word was with God, and then he begins his particular ministry. There's a talk about him at uh, Cana, where he changes water to wine. The purification uh, water, water that's used for the ritual uh, washing of the Jewish people before they have their meal, was transformed from water into wine. Then there's also the talk with Nicodemus, uh, the elder in the synagogue or the, in the temple, and talking about the movement of the Holy Spirit, and unless one is born again of the Spirit, one cannot enter into the kingdom. And following on that, the, this famous story about the Samaritan woman, how Jesus deals with this woman and talks about living water. And one of the things that comes across in the story of the Samaritan woman is where Jesus responds to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask of him of living water and he would give it. Uh, pointing out that the gospel requires us to know who it is and what it is we are asking for. Uh, 
if you're asking for this living water, who gives it and what is it? Uh, it is finally given to her and the Samaritan people finally understand this. So right at the end of that Samaritan story is this story about the healing of a royal official's uh, son, a Herodian official. Now, Herod is actually a tetrarch. A tetrarch is slightly different from a king. He acts like a king, but he's not a king. But Herod had it, you know, was rather proud and arrogant, and he liked it when people referred to him as a king. Uh, but he was Herod, the tetrarch who was uh, ruling. And in his court, which he called a royal court, again, he's not royal, he's not a king, he's a tetrarch, given and assigned responsibility by the Roman people. Uh, to, to care for these people. So this royal official is an official of the Herodian court. He comes to Jesus. Uh, Eliot uh, painted this picture, a uh, famous painter, and it shows this uh, distinction between Jesus and what the Herodian officials look like. And uh, if you watch any of these old movies, they always tend to display uh, the court officials a little bit like that. They, they wear uh, these kind of... Uh, uh, finery. Now it's quite interesting to note that the first sign which John talks about is the wedding at Cana. The second sign, which is uh, which is kind of like a, what we call an inclusio, uh, two bookends. An inclusio starts something, and uh, the closing inclusio, the other bookend, which is a repetition of a similar sign, uh, happens in this healing of the official. So two signs that enclose one particular segment of teaching about the temple, about purification, about uh, religious people, and also about the well of Jacob because the Samaritan woman is talking about this well of Jacob. And in all of these signs, John clearly says these are signs. Signs of Jesus uh, doing something and it should be pointing to a greater truth. That's what it is. A sign is something that points towards a greater truth, or as we understand it, a destination. A sign points to a destination. So this is, in a way, uh, the closing end portion of that particular statement. And this royal official comes to Jesus in Cana. The royal official apparently is uh, from this place. It's very difficult to see, uh, but he comes from uh, Capernaum. Okay. Capernaum is by the sea, and if you look at where Cana is, Cana is actually up on a hill. Now, I put these maps because how many of you, when you read your Bible, you pull out the, the, the atlas along with you? Uh, not many do. But you'd be surprised to find that when you do that, the geography and the geology adds a little bit more interesting stuff to note. So uh, let me just read this again. Uh, verse 43 says, After two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also... Uh, had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee. So, uh, Jesus is in this Galilee region. Now, some of you might be thinking, where's Samaria? Because the previous story about Samaria is, uh, is mentioned. Samaria is down south. 
quite a far distance south. Uh, so from Samaria, he goes back into Nazareth, heading towards uh, Cana, up the hilly area. And this official comes to him from Capernaum, going to Cana, a distance of approximately 20 miles. Okay, 20 miles uh, walking most of the time. Most of the time walking, if you're, if you're a bit more wealthy, maybe you can afford a donkey or a horse. But uh, if you're an official, more likely a donkey or you walk. So 20 miles distance uphill in very uh, not easy terrain. Now, what happens here? Uh, one of the first statements that John makes here is uh, right in that first uh, 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 second verse of that, which is bracketed in your Bibles. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But I want to point out there, he continues immediately to say, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, hang on. If he, is, uh, if he has no honor, why is he welcomed? Uh, so, you could, you could read this and totally miss the point that John is being ironic. John is saying, look, uh, they welcome him, but he has no honor with them. And the text will tell you as you go along that in other parts of the gospel, and even in this particular gospel, his own people reject him, right? But when he says uh, a prophet has no honor in his own country, Jesus is saying his own country. Which country is he referring to? Uh, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology comes up with 10 possible situations. But for our interest, I just want to summarize it to say his own country is essentially not just Jerusalem or Judea or Galilee, but the whole of Israel. He is not honored in the whole of Israel because the whole of Israel essentially rejects him other than a very, very small minority, uh, you know, his uh, following of 11 plus those, this, those followers who followed him. Now, this is contrasted to the Samaritans who are not Israelites. They are pseudo-Israelites, but they are rejected, kind of like Gentile people. And the Samaritans say, the Samaritans in the previous portion says, they believe and they say, we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Now that's a really marvellous passage. There is this Samaritan woman who is a reject of society, who lives in an adulterous relationship, who encounters uh, Jesus and believes him to be a prophet, but not only a prophet, one who knows more than that. Now, this Samaritan woman, having encountered Jesus, runs off to the city, Samaria, brings all these people. And finally, one representative from the city says to the woman and everybody else, we believe him, not because you have come and told us, but because we ourselves have heard and we believe and say and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Everywhere else in Jerusalem, Judea, especially in the temple and all the conflict there, Jesus is just a wise guy, a rabbi, a teacher, a man. But for everyone else who encounters him, even the demons say, you are the Holy One of God. 
And the Samaritans, who are not the chosen people of Israel, they say, we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. He's the one who comes to bring uh, the reign of God. Then we have the statement where Jesus uh, enigmatically says this because uh, this royal official comes to him. Uh, verse 46, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now, some people say, hey, this sounds very much like uh, that story about the centurion. But notice that there are significant differences between the two. In this one, this is a royal official. He's not a centurion. Uh, in this particular situation, the royal official has a son who is sick, near to death. In the other story, the centurion has a servant or a slave who is also near to death. Although they are roughly in the same area, they're not. Uh, one is in Capernaum, the other one is in Cana. Okay, the, the setting is in, in, in a different place. So they are, they are quite distinct of each other, and so we would put that it is a different, uh, different scenario. Now, when this man, verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And this is what Jesus responds. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now, the statement that Jesus gives is not what we would call prescriptive. A prescription is what I give you in order for you to be healed. Or a prescription is what I tell you in order for you to do. This is more a statement of Jesus giving an observation and the question you have to ask yourself is, is this a good observation or is this not a good observation or is this neutral? So if someone says to you, you know, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe, is that good or is that bad? You, I leave it to you to think about this. Uh, but we'll, we'll go a little bit further and we see how Jesus eventually concludes uh, this particular situation. Now, if you look at how Jesus responds, uh, the royal official in verse 48, okay, so let me play this back again slowly so that you follow this. Jesus had responded, and some would say, most commentators would say, this is almost like a rebuff, you know, a rebuff. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. It's, uh, it's interesting because when you read it in the Greek, it's an imperative, it's a command. The royal official, in his, all his power and in all his regalia, has come to this rabbi, teacher, popular guy, who maybe he knew that Jesus had done this miracle in Jerusalem, the, the changing of water to wine. Now John, when he records this at the first sign, says, there he revealed his glory, his majesty. So, so that was the first sign that revealed uh, Jesus' ability to point to the glory of God. And so maybe this royal official had heard about it. He'd come all the way and he'd look for this person and maybe he's pressing on Jesus to say, 
come. Come down before my child dies. And Jesus' response here is, uh, go, your son will live. It's an equal imperative. It's an equal imperative. But why does Jesus do this? He doesn't have to. And in a way, uh, he's doing something for this other official when this official is demanding it of him. Come, come with me. So, in a way, Christ comes by his grace to decide what he will do. But in the same way that this official has commanded Jesus, Jesus in turn gives him an imperative, go, your son will live. Now let's take a few things from here. Uh, in your NIV translation, uh, slightly different interpretation. What we have in, in that one is, is the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Some of you having a newer version would say, uh, the man took Jesus at his word. That's interesting because to have faith and to believe is to take Jesus or God at his word. Now, what does that mean? Um, if I see a chair and I say, I believe that this chair can take my weight, I believe it. <clears throat> but true faith is when I have the courage to put my weight on it, sit on it, stand on it, rely on it. And so this royal official took Jesus' word for truth, relied on it, and went. You know, he, he stopped pestering Jesus. He didn't grab him and kidnap him and say, come with me. He just took his word and left. Now, what, what, do we, what do we take from some of these things? <clears throat> I already mentioned that this, there's this interplay of who commands who. The royal official gives this imperative, come down with me, sir. Right. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, says, uh, turn back. Go, your son will live. I don't know how many of you in your responses when you were reading uh, throughout this week, when you came across this text, uh, you hear this command that Jesus gives, go. Go, your son will live. Go, make disciples. Go and spread the gospel. Uh, we hear it, how many take his word for truth and go and rely on it. That's a tough one. How many of us, when we come to this, we are like this uh, royal official looking for signs? Give me a sign that this will happen. Give me a sign that I'm on the right way. Give me a sign that this is where I ought to go. But instead, we spend time trying to look for the sign and wait at the sign. Uh, it's almost as if you are falling in love with a signpost. You know, I like the signpost. The signpost is so good. It does all these wonderful things. But you forget that the purpose of a signpost is to point towards something greater. Uh, and you get enamored with that particular sign. <clears throat> what is the purpose of signs and wonders? So let me continue that reading. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Verse 54 uh, Sorry, 51. While he was still 
on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Now, that time is, uh, is stated there in the seventh hour. Okay, in the actual original text, in some of the old, uh, more literal texts, you say in the seventh hour. Jewish time is calculated at six in the morning. So six plus seven, one in the afternoon. At one in the afternoon, your son was healed. But this uh, Roman official, in fact, uh, sorry, not Roman, this uh, Herod Royals, Herodian royal official uh, was going on this journey and this journey took a little bit longer than expected because it's only the following day that he actually leaves. Okay? So if Jesus had told him in the afternoon and you now have to travel 20 miles to go back, somehow or other, this person had not arrived on the same day. He had not left immediately. He had left Jesus, but he only heads home the following day. But when he inquires, he's told he, his son is healed. And he said, what time? Seventh hour. Uh, in the seventh hour, seven being a rather significant number for Jewish people, uh, the perfect number. And the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. So he and his whole household believed. What is the purpose of signs and wonders? The purpose of signs and wonders is that you would believe. But who? Now let me make it quite clear that it is the son that needs to be healed. Jesus doesn't go to the son, neither does anyone ask the son, believe in Jesus. The recipient of the healing is not in this picture at all. The one who is asking for this is the father, and it is the father's faith that is basically being asked, do you believe? Will you recognize this? At which point was the healing done? Was it before or after? The healing was done at the moment when he departed and the, the healing occurred, at least to his knowledge, at the time when Jesus says, go, your son will be healed or your son will live. Uh, that's when the healing occurred. Now, does healing come as a result of that man's faith? And when I say faith, did he see the sign and the wonder then believe? Or did he believe then the sign and wonder occurred? Or did it occur at the moment when God said, go, your son will live? I repeat that and some of you are like, what exactly did he say? Is healing dependent on the sign and the wonder? Okay. Is the belief, sorry, is the faith and the belief dependent on the sign and the wonder? Or is the belief before, I must believe, then he will get healed? Or is it the case, when he's healed, then I will believe? Or is the healing totally independent of all of that? Now I ask you to think about this because 
how you perceive this defines how you respond to many of these situations where we have faith healing. Uh, a faith healer will come to you and says, you must believe. Because if you don't believe, it won't happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's because you do not have faith. Right? And I'd like to point out here, the scripture doesn't always evidence that. The child who is healed doesn't know anything about Jesus, has not heard. So his healing is not dependent on his knowing Jesus. The father goes and in faith asks Jesus, please, heal. He trusts and puts his, uh, puts his trust in Jesus' word and he goes. But does he have any evidence that the sign and the wonder has occurred? No. But does he believe as soon as he hears that this has happened? Yes, he does. But was the miracle dependent on him believing? No. <laughs> Because it happened the moment that Jesus said, go, your son will live. So let me put it here. Signs and wonders are determined by God. Not by your faith, not by the mumbo-jumbo of people saying, I will invoke God that he does this, then this sign and wonder will occur. It doesn't. It is God's will. God can use the most vile of people to do miracles. And we see all this tele-evangelists, some of them eventually now come up and say, I admit, I lived a very, very sinful life. And yet we notice that God has worked through them. The issue is not the vessel that does this. The issue is who is the God that determines to do this. And why I say this, again, it's a, it's a corrective. Because why exactly was this man seeking out Jesus? He sought Jesus because he wanted this miracle worker to do a miracle. Very much like we go to a Sifu or a mentor. You know, uh, in the past 10 years or so, Malaysia has been so enamored with all these feng shui guys. Uh, tell me what I need to do to my house so that I can get good ong. <laughs> Banyak ong. Get good fortune. And even Christians get led into this. What is the purpose of all these things? Are we seeking them for, for the miracles that they do? In other words, are you seeking it because I'm in love with the signpost? Or am I seeking the signs in order to move on to find where is this sign pointing to? John's point is that these signs point to the presence of the Messiah, the Savior, the King. And if we lose sight of what we're pointing to and only keep our eyes on the signs and the wonders, we kind of like have missed the point. So let me uh, bring it to this close. Don't fall in love with the signposts. Uh, distinguish the gift from the giver. Many people have at many times consumed many books, gone to many events, seeking the signs and the wonders. And I say this also as a corrective because I know next Tuesday, 
on the 8th of January at 8pm, Watoto is coming and they're doing a concert, Signs and Wonders. And some people come and expect, oh, I expect to see Signs and Wonders. And no. Their Signs and Wonders are for them to testify about what God has done in their life, which was a sign for them to move deeper into the truth of Jesus. When these things happen in their lives, they bear testimony to say, God has done this. It's a sign and a wonder. Was it something in their life that they did that made them in such a way? Uh, no. Very much in this story, God has decided that He would do something and they are being faithful in declaring it. And we are encouraged. And at times, is there any wrong in asking for a sign and a miracle? No, there isn't. But if you demand it, and if that is all you seek, then you are seeking the gift, not the giver. You're seeking the gift, not the giver. Now, uh, I think this story used to be told in many places about this uh, man who encountered this woman and he wanted to woo her and found out that uh, she was under an enchantment. Beautiful, beautiful. And uh, when he wooed her, she said to him, look, uh, we can get married, but I will tell you that you have to choose. During the day, I am this beautiful uh, princess, but at night, I turn into a witch, the most hideous witch. You have to choose which one you want me to be when. You have to choose which one you want me to be when, whether you want me to be beautiful in the day or at night. <laughs> but it has to be either one. And the man who, after many suitors had failed, said, I just want you. You choose. And so she chose to be beautiful all the time. Now, it's, you know, you would argue, is that true? But this is essentially trying to illustrate this point. Are you in love with the gift, what is nice and what you think is good, or do you love the giver of the gift? And the giver of the gift gives us life in all its complexity with all its ups and downs, all its peaks and troughs. And we sometimes do not appreciate what we have unless we have gone through enough suffering and difficulty. I had a friend who was in his 60s when I spoke to him 10 years ago and he said, I think one of the mistakes we made living through this era is that our children have life too easy. We went through the war, we went through May 13, we went through independence and a number of depressions and we know what it means to not have, to just eat ubi, <laughs> to just scavenge in the forest, to hide from the Japanese. We know what hardship is. But many of our children in our middle life, upper income status, they, they don't know what it means to not have this. And so the ability to persevere and continue in the face of difficulty is challenged. What is the signpost uh, that you are enamored with, that you are looking for? What are you asking God for and what are your motives? 
I'd like to point out and remind you that in spite of the fact that this uh, Herodian royal official demanded of God and said, I, you know, do this, follow me. I want you to do this. Jesus didn't say no you, out of arrogance, I refuse to do this. He nonetheless did it that he might believe. Signs and wonders are given in order that we might see the greater truth behind it. And quite often, faith comes either as a result of that sign and wonder or as evidence of that sign of wonder. So I would point out to you, in the number of miracles that are in the Bible, the person doesn't even know that who Jesus is. You recall there's another story, even within this book of John, uh, where this man was walking, uh, was at the pool uh, in Bethsaida. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he gives this excuse, you know, I'm not ready, I can't get there in time, no one's around to get me. And Jesus says, you know, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And because he's walking and carrying his mat on a Sabbath day, people get upset. You're not supposed to carry your mat on a Sabbath day. Who told you to carry this mat? The man who healed me told me to carry this mat. Who is he? I don't know. <laughs> so was his, was his healing dependent on faith in the name of Jesus? Because he didn't even know who this guy was. No, it happened because God determined, Jesus determined that it would happen. And out of this, when he finally met Jesus and Jesus said, go and sin no more, he believed in Jesus. He had received an epiphany, not about the miracle, but the truth behind that miracle. Now, let me go back to answering that question. Was this statement, unless you see signs and wonders, only then will you believe? Is that positive, neutral, or negative? How did Jesus himself put it? And this is, this is no longer a story of, uh, of uh, what happened. It is more a statement of what Jesus feels about this. This is in response to Thomas, when Thomas doubts Jesus. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I have been deeply, deeply encouraged much, much more by people who have not been healed even when they cry out to God. And having not been healed, they nonetheless say, God's will be done. If I am healed, I rejoice. If I'm not healed, I rejoice. God is with me and I will face my future. They have put their weight on the words of God and they go. And going means even after seeing the signposts and walking on in a desert where there are no further signposts, they continue in the direction of the previous signpost that says, God is there. Go. But let me point out one truth about this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed indeed are they because the moment they believe, Christ is with them. The signpost has changed to be the presence of God with them. That act of belief invites Christ into their lives. They no longer need to continue their search, but Christ is with them. 
doesn't mean that it transforms your entire world and everything will be healed because all of us will die. But it is how we live our lives. In the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty, how will you live? Will you be enamored with the signposts or will you look beyond the signposts to the truth of Christ? Let us pray. Dear Lord, even as we bring others uh, to come for the Watoto event tomorrow, even as we continue to look for signs of your movement, help us to believe even when we do not see, to trust your hand and to know that even in our history, Lord, that you have been faithful and steadfast throughout all the generations and that your loving kindness knows no end. Help us to continue to put our trust in you and to continue to read your scriptures, which is a clear sign and a revelation of your truth. And help us, Lord, to gain these epiphanies of a deeper truth each and every day when we abide in you and we continue to read your word. We commit this to you, Lord, asking all this in Jesus' name. Amen.